awesome worship, don't you think? <laughs> if you're not convinced he's alive yet, I don't know what will. So thank you. That was uh, incredible. And I pray by the end of this morning, if you're not convinced, you will be convinced that he is alive, he can change your life, and he can change my life. You know, one Sunday morning, a mother came and she woke her son up so that he could get ready for church. And the son said, well, I don't want to go to church. And he said, and the mother asked him, well, why don't you want to go to church? And the son said, I'll give you two reasons. The first reason is that people at the church don't like me. The second reason is I don't like them. And the mother said, well, I'm going to give you two reasons why you need to go to church. Number one, you're 59 years old. Number two, you're the pastor of the church. You know, sometimes even a pastor doesn't feel like going to church. But as I like to say, as many in the congregation know, I'm paid to be good and you're good for nothing. Seriously, though, I'm sure some of you probably did not want to be here this morning. Maybe someone drugged you here this morning. Maybe they bribed you, but you're here. I just want you to know that I'm very thankful that you are here this morning. And I believe that you're going to perhaps see and hear things that you've never seen or heard before, and I believe they can be truly life-changing. I've entitled the message this morning, When Faith Overcame Fear. Lord, I just thank you. This is the high point for me. There's nothing greater than Resurrection Sunday, the greatest event to ever occur on planet Earth. It is a great event because it shows us there's more to this life than just this life. It shows us that there's hope for every single one of us in here this morning and out there. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will just fill me, that I truly will not speak the words of men or man, but I will speak Holy Spirit-filled words. You are welcome here. You're already here, Holy Spirit, and I pray that you'll even come in a greater way, that our hearts are truly going to be lifted. I pray that scales may come off some eyes and be amazed at what they see. Now, may you just glorify Jesus in these next several minutes. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. It's something every single one of us knows. And if we're honest this morning, it's probably something every single one of us struggles with. The question is, how do you handle your fears? How do you deal with your fear? Larry King, can, Skip, can you put his picture up? Most of us are probably still familiar with Larry King. He, for a long time, was America's number one interviewer. Of course, he had the CNN show Larry King Live. What many people, though, do not know is that Larry King struggled with a paralyzing fear. You do know what that fear was or is? The fear of death. Larry King struggles with the fear of death. According to the New York Times, Larry King starts his day out by reading the obituary section of the newspaper. Sounds like a fun guy, doesn't it, huh? And he wonders, who will give my obituary? King has had a heart attack, a triple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. And I thought Jaja Gabor was bad, huh? When Larry King was 77 years old, CNN dumped him. They told him that he was too old. So King became even more obsessed with aging and with death, and he began to take hormone pills to rejuvenate his body, for them to be exact, every single day. King says that when he dies, he's going to have his body frozen with the hope 
that he will live again someday. The New York Times writer reports King saying this, I know it's nuts, but at least it gives me a shred of hope. And then King said this in the article, most people have no hope. I'm going to ask you this morning, what hope do you have? What hope? What is really the hope that you are hanging on? The Onion. Skip, can you put up the picture? The Onion, of course, is a news agency, and it's somewhat of a cutting-edge rag, and it tends to poke fun at people and just life in general. Not too long ago, The Onion published an article entitled World Death Rate Holding Steady at 100%. The article reported World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains at 100%. Death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions, has been considered humanity's number one health concern, responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide. The condition has no cure at this time. I was really hoping with all of these new radiology treatments, rescue helicopters, aerobic TV shows, and whatnot, that we might at least make a dent in it this year, said Dr. Gernsblatt, director of general of WHO, the World Health Organization. The Onion ended by saying this. Unfortunately, it would appear that death rate remains constant and total as it has involubly since the dawning of time. Now, obviously, this is a satirical piece, yet it highlights your greatest fear and my greatest fear. According to psychologists, the fear that underlies all of our fears is the fear of death. This morning, I want to talk to you about 11 men, 11 men who overcame their fears by overcoming the fear, the fear of death. On Jesus' final night on planet Earth, when he was arrested, we know that he was betrayed by one of his 12 disciples. That name shall live in infamy. His name is none other, of course, than Judas of Iscariot. Isn't it interesting to note that no parents ever name their child Judas anymore? Have you noticed that? But as dastardly as Judas was, do you know the other 11 disciples were really not that much better? Skip, can you put up Matthew in chapter 26? It says, and as even Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and the elders of the people. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him a kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told them. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you have come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. 
At that point, all the disciples deserted him and they fled. Now that's a disturbing picture. That is a disturbing picture. Jesus in his greatest hour of need, the men who were closest to him deserted him. I think that's an amazing admission on the part of Matthew, one of his disciples. You know, if I had been Matthew, you know how I would have written that thing? I would have said, you know, all of the other disciples, they were a bunch of zeros and they were, you know, total sots and lacked courage. But I, Matthew, I stood with Jesus the whole way. I finished through. I stood with him. That's what I would have said. But Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew admits not only that he was a coward, but he says all of the disciples were a coward. And Philosophers call this a ring of truth. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means that you can be certain that what Matthew said happened. Certainly it went down just that way. On that night, those 11 disciples, those closest to Jesus, proved to be cowards. Absolute, total cowards. And I'll tell you, they did it all just to save their necks. In fact, the Apostle John writes this in John chapter 20. He says that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Can you see? I mean, I, I have seen that picture in my mind's eye so often. There they are. Can you see these 11 men, 11 grown men, and they're cowering. They're, they're shaking behind closed doors. I mean, this is a picture of stark fear. And you know what they're afraid of? They're afraid that what they did to Jesus Christ, they saw it. What they did to Jesus, they will do to them. Skip, can you put up that picture? That's a very real possibility. Don't kid yourself. The Romans loved to crucify criminals. Loved crucifying the criminals. And that was a very real possibility for those disciples. In fact, in the ancient world, there was nothing worse than crucifixion. Crucifixion was the worst torture that you could befall you. It didn't take you generally hours to die. Jesus was amazing that he died within six hours. It generally took days for you to die. And there was no more painful torture in the Roman world than crucifixion. No more painful torture than crucifixion. In fact, it is said that the average Roman citizen considered crucifixion so horrifying and so terrible they wouldn't even speak of it. So you're asking me, Pastor, what is your point? Let me tell you what my point is. I want you to understand something. Maybe you know fear. Maybe you're in fear right now. These 11 men were living in stark fear. Stark fear. They were afraid. Can you imagine living like that? And that's how they were. Yet, yet, listen to this now. 50 days later, these seven, 11 men, I want you to get this. They went to the temple in Jerusalem. That's the big temple. This is the very city that Jesus was crucified. There they were standing on the steps. And there were thousands and thousands of people because it was the Feast of Pentecost, one of the major Jewish feasts. So there are all these thousands of people. The Jewish authorities who had Jesus arrested and condemned were there. The Roman authorities who crucified Jesus were there. And the Apostle Peter, who's the spokesman for the disciples, listen to what he says just 50 days later after cowering behind closed doors. Skip, can you put this up in Acts chapter 2? Here's Peter. Here's his message. People of Israel. So here's thousands of people. Listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. 
And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and you killed him. Nothing like the subtle approach, huh? I mean, you got to love Peter. He starts out, he says, you are all murderers. Every single one of you are murderers. And then Jesus, or Peter continues his uplifting message. Can you put that up, Skip? Here he goes. God, though, raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Then Peter ends, like any pastor with a flourish, like any preacher here, put it up. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Now, what was the crowd's response? Remember, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people. Skip, put it up. Here's what the response of these thousands. Peter's words pierced their hearts. They were cut to the quick by what Peter said. And then we're told in verse 41 that some 3,000 people responded to the Apostle Peter's first sermon. Not a bad first sermon, don't you think? Any preacher would like to see 3,000 people passing from death to life. That's what happened. Now here, though, is absolutely what is amazing to me. Here's what just blows my mind, and here's what I want you to think about. It should be of interest to you, because it certainly is of interest to me. How do you explain these 11 men? These 11 men who were just cowering and terrified, living behind closed doors, and yet 50 days later, you see them in front of thousands and thousands of people, the very city where Jesus was crucified, and they accuse them of deicide of killing God in the flesh. I mean, that takes guts to do that. These 11 men had every reason to believe after Peter got done that they would be arrested, they would be arraigned, they would be condemned, and they would ultimately be crucified just like Jesus. 50 days earlier, they're cowering behind closed doors. Now they're willing to give up their lives freely. How do you explain These 11 men going from incredible cowards to men of great courage. How do you explain it? In fact, these 11 men, I want you to listen to this now. These 11 men did give their lives for Jesus. Listen to how they died. James the less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a club. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross where he preached to his persecutors until he died. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil, but escaped death in a miraculous manner after he was banished to the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified in Rome, head downward. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Mark expired at Alexandria after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was beheaded at Rome by the Emperor Nero. One by one, one by one, these men went to their deaths for Jesus Christ. What changed these men from cowards? See, this is what I wanted to know before I became a believer. What caused these men to move from cowards to men of incredible courage? You know what's interesting? You don't even need the Bible for what I'm talking about. This is historical fact. 
the Jewish Talmud. By the way, they're hostile witnesses to Jesus. Josephus, a Jewish historian, several of the Roman historians testify to five facts. Five facts that you don't even need the Bible for. Here are the five facts. Five irrefutable facts. Fact number one, there was a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Fact number two, he was crucified on a Roman cross and dead. One thing Roman soldiers know how to do is kill people. You can be certain he was dead. Fact number three, he was placed in a tomb. Fact number four, on the third day, that tomb was empty. And fact number five is this, that in a very short period of time, these, these disciples, these 11 disciples who were cowards, in very short order became men of courage. These are five absolutely irrefutable facts. These are facts that, and I love talking to atheists about this, because the resurrection is one of the most historical, provable events, and I love talking to atheists and non-Christians. And here's the problem for the atheists. Here's the problem for the non-Christians. they got to explain how these guys were cowards, because everybody testified, and just 50 days later, they're men of courage. How do you explain that? I'm going to give you the two Two greatest theories or hypotheses atheists and non-Christians put forward. You're going to see how strong the case of the resurrection is. The first theory or hypothesis put forward by atheists or non-believers is that the disciples, the disciples actually stole the body and they concocted the story of the resurrection. You know why? So they could get rich and famous. Now see, there's two problems with that theory. Or hypothesis. Number one, they didn't get rich and famous. In fact, you know, when Christianity first started out, if you were a Christian, you were viewed as part of this really weird cult. Yeah, Christian, Christians were viewed as, as cult people. They were accused of incest. They were accused of having all kinds of orgies. They were accused of drinking blood. Because, you know, of the communion, they were thought to be drinking Jesus' blood. I mean, they were really viewed as whacked out people. They were kind of viewed like the Moonies. You know how we view the Moonies? Remember the Moonies? That's the Reverend Sun Yum Moon that's actually taking place in Madison Square Garden where they married over a thousand people way back in the 70s. I don't know if you remember that or not. But that's how the early Christians were viewed. Now let me give you a second reason why it's absurd to believe that the disciples actually stole the body and then concocted the story of the resurrection. Chuck Colson. Skip, can you put up his picture? Some of you might remember Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon. In fact, in 1972, he was put in charge of Richard Nixon's re-election campaign. The press branded Chuck Colson the evil genius. He was not a nice guy. He eventually, though, went to prison because of his involvement in the Watergate affair, obstruction of justice. You'll remember Watergate brought down President Richard Nixon. In prison, or really just before prison, and in prison, Colson had what we call a radical conversion to Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to read a great read, if you want to read a great book, read Born Again, and you'll read Colson's story, because really, this guy would have been voted least likely to be a Christian. He was an evil guy. He said, I, I would have my grandmother run over to have Richard Nixon reelected. So this isn't a guy, you, you know, if you're a lady, you didn't want to marry, okay? This is just not a nice guy. 
But he comes out of prison a changed man. And he starts a, a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship. And because he is an extremely bright guy, he would go around college campuses, especially the Ivy League, and be talking about Christianity and why Christianity is true. Now, there's two things that Chuck Colson knew for certain. Number one, he knew about cover-ups. And number two, he knew how quickly cover-ups can break down. Skip, could put up this man's picture. I don't know if you're going to remember this man. The man he's going to put up there is John Dean. And John Dean was right along with Chuck Colson. In fact, his official title is White House Counsel for the President. Now get this. These are the most powerful men on planet Earth, Colson, Dean, the rest of them. And they couldn't protect the president for three weeks. Three weeks, they could not protect the president. They could not cover up the Watergate affair. Within three weeks, when the heat got turned up, John Dean began singing like a wren in heat during springtime. Colson makes this really interesting statement in a, in a speech he was giving at Harvard University. Listen to what Colson said. It is, really, is it really likely that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetuate a lie about the resurrection, could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles, the scrutiny of early church councils, the horrendous purge of the first century believers who were cast by the thousands to the lines for refusing to renounce the lordship of Christ. Take it from one who was inside the Watergate web looking out, who saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is, nothing less than a witness as awesome as the resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and that he is Lord. I want you to know for certain, despite what the Jewish people said and the Jewish leaders, the disciples did not steal the body. Now, I very quickly want to give you the second explanation that atheists and humanists and non-believers give for how do you world explain the disciples moving from cowards to men of courage in 50 days. And here's the second explanation, hallucination. That's right. That's the best they can come up with, hallucination. Now, there's two problems with the hallucination theory. The first problem with the hallucination theory is that there's not one documented case. Did you know? There's not one documented case of mass hallucination. So in other words, it's unscientific. The second reason why hallucination is kind of a dumb theory, and it hitchhikes on the first, is hallucinations are personal. Did you know that? They're kind of like a dream in this way. And, uh, you know, let, let me just give you an example so you can kind of understand what I'm, I'm saying here. Let's say that I were to wake up in the middle of the night. And I were to wake my wife up. And I, I you know, I shook Susan awake. And she says, what, what, what? Susan, I had this, this is, she's my wife. I had this fantastic dream. I was dreaming that I was in Hawaii on vacation. Now, I want you to go back to sleep. And I want you to begin dreaming and joy and join me in my dream about Hawaii so that we can have a free vacation. <laughs> How many think Susan's going to be impressed with that? Now, I'm going to tell you what she's going to do. She's going to go like that and I'm going to have a welt on my forehead and she's going to go say, go back to bed, you idiot. It doesn't work like that. Dreams, hallucinations are singular in event, you know, in occurrence. They're not mass. So it does not in any way, shape, or form explain what happened to the disciples. So let me give you the challenge for this morning. 
One thing that is absolutely everybody agrees on is you have the disciples who are cowards, who are living in fear. And maybe, like I said, you're living in fear this morning. Fifty days later, these men are transformed and they are changed. And we have to explain how that occurred. You've heard the evidence. You've heard the evidence. You've got to explain how do these 11 men... And most of them, by the way, gave up their entire adult lives speaking about Jesus, preaching about Jesus. They eventually were tortured for Jesus. And then almost every single one of them was martyred in a brutal way for Jesus. How in the world do you explain the change? Wouldn't you like to be like one of the disciples? Wouldn't you like to begin to live courageously? Wouldn't you like to begin to live without fear? You know, fear just robs you of your life. I want you to know it is possible. It is really possible to get there. Shirley Lansing. She was standing before a crowd of 45,000 people. It was in Seattle. It was at a Billy Graham crusade. And it was just after the Persian Gulf War. And I want to share with you part of what she said that night in front of 45,000 people in Seattle. She says, I've come with a story about my son. John Kendall Morgan, Warren Officer 1, United States Army, serving in Operation Desert Storm. Jack committed his life to Jesus when he was young. At the time, it didn't seem terribly important, but it was. A few weeks ago, two officers came to our door, and they told us they regretted to inform us that our son had been killed in action when his helicopter was shot down by hostile Iraqi fire. When Jack got on the airplane to leave for Saudi Arabia, he gave Lisa, his fiancée, a bride's book so they could be planning their wedding. I speak to you only from my heart and out of my pain because only God can give me the strength right now to stand here before you and say these words. But they are so important. Each one of you has a decision to make that my son made. At this, and at this is a time when you have a choice. And we never know how long we'll have that time to make that decision. Three weeks before he was killed, Jack wrote two letters to be opened just in case. After we got the news, we opened our letter and it said, in case you have to open this, please don't worry. I am all right. Now I know something you don't know, what heaven is like. Now that's real faith. That's real faith. And if you have real faith, genuine faith, you can have and live in courage. Let me just end with this. Doubting Thomas, I'd be remiss not to end with Doubting Thomas. Skip put up his picture. Most of you are familiar with Doubting Thomas. I mean, Doubting Thomas was blown away. I mean, you talk about a guy who was despondent after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He was incredibly despondent. In fact, there were all kinds of resurrection rumors floating around Jerusalem. And Thomas said, I want you to know, I refuse to believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead unless I put my hand in the nail wounds, unless I put my hand in his side wound and probe those wounds. I will not believe. And so you know what? Jesus is gracious. And look what happens in John chapter 20. Skip, can you put it up for us? Here's what happened to Thomas. Eight days later, The disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. 
Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. Now watch what Jesus says next, though, because this pertains to you and me. Then Jesus told them, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Do you know how Thomas died? Do you know how Thomas died? Thomas died knowing going to India. He was the apostle to India. And one day he was preaching in the capital city of India, Madras. And as he is preaching, there is this group, this mob begins to encircle him. And as he's preaching fearlessly about Jesus, they spear him to death. And that is how Thomas died. But I want you to know that Thomas died courageously. Thomas died with incredible courage. And I want you to know that it's, impo- it's possible for every single one of us to change, even now. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Blessed are those who believe the facts that you've just heard. Blessed are those who receive the testimony of the 11 disciples. Those 11 men went from cowards to living fearlessly. They died And they were not concerned about death. Wouldn't you like to no longer be concerned about death? And it's possible because Jesus is alive. Those 11 men saw him alive. And they were so convinced of his resurrection that they willingly forfeited the rest of their adult lives preaching and teaching that and eventually dying a martyr's death for that. It is possible. It is possible for you and I to live that courageously. The question is, will you believe the facts now? Will you finally, if you have not surrendered to those facts, because I can tell you I'm one man who changed. And you can change from being a coward to tremendous, tremendous courage once all of a sudden the scales come off your eyes and you see that Jesus Christ is alive and there's no longer anything to fear that this world's going to throw at you. So many people I see fear ISIS. What a shame. They can't do anything to the born-again Christian. What? They can kill my body, but what are they going to do? They're going to give me what I want. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. The resurrection says there's so much more to life than just this life. I pray if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now is the morning to do it. Now is the morning that you can pass from death to life. Now is the morning you can pass from fear. You're going to go to work tomorrow. And a lot of people fear that. And you don't have to live that way anymore. You can begin to live courageously because Jesus Christ is alive.